0: Have you ever asked the questions In the corners of your mind?
1: It's the beauty in life that makes it alive. And doing is freeing yourself from your head. To be doobie dooby doing till we doobie dooby dead. Do something beautiful. The one chance I see, my life will have some real meaning for me. The one mark that counts of the many I make and the care that I give and the care that I take. Do something beautiful.
0: Welcome everybody to this week's episode of I Believe. We're very lucky to have joining us today the esteemed actor Mr. Max Gale. Emmy Award winning, all-round creative, film, television, theater. He's a poet, he's a musician, he's an activist, he's a free thinker. A very special guys.
2: You will possibly recognize Max in his role in Barney Miller as Sergeant Wojo. We're here to talk about how his beliefs framed his life. Now his life frames his belief, which is one of the things that I believe is all about.
0: Max, we're overjoyed. Welcome to the studio. It's fantastic for you to join us for this week's podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
0: We're in a period of time where people aren't being allowed to get what they truly believe in. They're being told from outside what to believe in. Uh-huh. So we're just trying to open up topics of discussion, investigation to say... What do you believe? It's almost like becoming in a very short space of time a lost art to be able to just have an honest, genuine conversation with somebody and for them to go, "Ah, oh, that's interesting. I yeah, I don't believe that. I'm going to think about that.
1: <laughs> I also love the kind of language of boo and believe and boo being be you. One of the first songs that kind of came to me or wrote me at a a certain time in my life. It's called Do Something Beautiful. The insight for me or the epiphany or whatever it was, I'd always been thinking in terms of what did I want to be? What do you want to be when you grow up? Kind of question i came through uh, the time of the graduate and the kind of gag in the graduate if you remember the film where the older guy was where's dustin gonna go and he was going plastics i was thinking about what i wanted to be so if i was watching a, a movie about doctors and it was a good movie i might want to be a doctor if it was a bad movie i'd want to be an actor kind of what had my attention would be well maybe that's what i want to be the insight was it was what i wanted to do and the song is going to do something beautiful and I found in singing it on the rift, do something beautiful, be you, beautiful, somewhere in that um, idea of being you is uh, the notion of beauty. And it is what makes people beautiful, I think.
0: you happy to share that with the poem? Sure.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, it goes, uh, do something beautiful. That's what I want to do. It's not something you own. It does not own you. It's not the people you please or the places you go. It's in the living that happens when you're happening with the flow. Do something beautiful. That's what I know I'm here for. Although it's not much, I know there's not much more. It's not something you win, like winning a race. It's you and your life meeting face to face. Do something beautiful. It makes me feel so good. And it seemed like so long, I didn't know that I could. And then one day I knew I could breathe in a breath and breathe it out in a way that would save me from death by seeing around me in each and any minute, it's a beautiful world and we're born to breathe in it. If beauty you see and beauty you feel, then beauty will be and it will be real. Do something beautiful, that's how I'll survive. It's the beauty in life that makes it alive and doing is freeing yourself from your head. To be dooby dooby doing till we dooby dooby dead. Do something beautiful, the one chance I see, My life will have some real meaning for me. The one mark that counts of the many I make and the care that I give and the care that I take. Do something beautiful. And then the riff is going, Do something beautiful, be you. Do something beautiful. I love that. So we're we're in the groove there with each other on the be (laughs) you.
0: This is where I wish the listeners could see that. It's just, there's no paper, there's no reading. It's just coming Fully out of you. That's that's amazing.
1: It kind of showed up like that. Other than the dooby dooby doing, there was a while in there where the uh, doing is freeing yourself from your head to be a giving being, not a living dead. But it was the contrast of those two—the one or the other sort of thing—that never quite felt right. And I got into that doing and being, and doing and being, and and then I realized, okay, that Frank Sinatra had it right. You know, dooby dooby do.
0: Would you say that when we talked about plastics and the graduate, and then you come in along that as a poem? It's almost that verb noun juxtaposition, isn't it? The yeah, doing,
1: the doing and the and the being. Yeah, in grammar, it's a gerund, right? A word that's a, a noun and a and a verb. It's my understanding and the limited knowledge I have about the language, but the Lakota language and a lot of other languages, and you know, have are more movement based, more verb based. So, for instance, the Lakota word for white man it's wasichu wasichu in Lakota and the way that was explained to me by a guy named Kevin Locke shu is a root word that refers to different aspects of the soul and the wasichu the image of the wasichu is when there'd be a fresh kill fresh buffalo kill you know that people go to work and they start shaving the meat so they could hang it on the bushes and dry it but the things that couldn't be kept the fat And the brains and, you know, they take the stomach and fill it with water and set it into like a hole in the ground and throw in hot stones. And then they'd throw all of that stuff like the bacon. You know what I mean? So the image of the wasichu was the person that would take more than their share of the fat. And if you think, okay, so what the Sioux were dealing with were a lot of the settlers coming out, many of whom had come over from Ireland or Sweden or places where they were not able to use any land. They'd have to sneak down to the river in the middle of the night and get some mud, take it up and mix it in with the stones and the little patch of land that that was getting divided up amongst their family. So the expression of well-being for people who came here, you know, was, how are you doing? Living off the fat of the land. I love So that's really interesting, isn't it?
2: A lot of people may know you in different contexts. Uh They've known you maybe because you were an actor. They've known you maybe for your music. If you were to meet somebody for the first time and introduce Max Gale, how would you introduce yourself?
1: I'd say, Hi, I'm Max Gale. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting because we have different identities in different contexts. Then I guess it gets into what is my job in introducing myself? Is it to lay out some things where people might know me from? Oh, yeah, that guy. I don't know. Okay, I'm, I'm a 77-year-old white man, which is an abstract concept that has no real meaning whatsoever. I grew up in the Midwest in the middle of uh, Turtle Island, that's known, in you know, the North American continent. I've been around music all my life. I'm the oldest of seven kids. The next one was my twin sister who came five minutes later. I'm sure because she said it's getting crowded in here. Taking <laughs> me a, a big foot push, you know, out to shoot, you know. And then a brother two years later and another set of twin sisters a year after he showed up. And then another set of twin sisters a couple of years later. So I grew up in this cluster.
2: So you had... Three sets of twins and then
1: one... One single, yeah. yeah. My brother was the odd one.
0: Do you ever, Max, and knowing you as we do as a friend, do you ever think, knowing your mum's backstory or sharing whatever you'd like to share with your mum's backstory, that there's always a divine jigsaw piece to how we live our life, isn't it? Have you ever thought in your own words and, and ruminations about maybe there was an abandonment of sorts with your mum going on, so she, she needed a plethora of children around <clears throat> her or to be oh, the yes. mother or to test herself to to survive being a mother and things. That's
1: kind of par for him to be just intuitively right at the center of something. But yeah, my mother, my mother's mother died in childbirth, giving birth to her. So she was in the hospital for quite a long time. And her father was a World War I psychological casualty. He was a great old Irish grandpa. But during those years, he just came back um, where he would have times of great success. And then he'd go on a binge and disappear. He did finally uh, remarry to a kind of retired opera singer from a German family in Fremont, Ohio. That was our Nana. So Grandpa Jack, when we knew him, he was a pretty merry fellow, but he did a lot of inappropriate things. So there was a lot of insecurity in her life where they would go back to Fremont, she and her new mom. And there was a a family of five kids, you know, in the neighborhood that the oldest daughter was called sister. So she had this longing for a big family and used to say that she always knew she was going to have a lot of kids. She somehow knew that. That informed her desire to be a Good mom, and it's quite a hit to have seven kids in six years. And it was in my thirties, late one night, up talking with my mom, and she said something, and I've I don't remember what it was, but it just became clear as a bell to me that she had planted in my brothers and my young brains, you know, don't 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 go to war, just don't do it. So I didn't, and I was able to kind of dance my way through it, and then I made it to twenty six, and and I was you know free of that particular destiny. Although I don't think any of us escaped the era. You know, we're all uh, Vietnam vets in a way, but I certainly dodged having the kind of traumatic uh, experiences that led a lot of people to be kind of crippled in that way for for the rest of their lives.
0: Yeah, having gone through it with with her own father, your grandfather, she really understood the whole perils of war, didn't she? And yeah. didn't want that for her own family
1: she knew or you know in her heart that's the path she chose to still have some love for this guy that all, that did wonderful things and then did terrible things but in particular i made choices i went to a small school only because i'd seen the guy uh, a guy from this school playing the piano in a band on a boat that i was with a bunch of foreign exchange students coming back from europe And he was an athlete and he was a musician. And I'd never heard of Williams College. So I ended up hitchhiking back with a friend. We went and looked at Williams and I said, I'm going to go here. But my excuse, my reason I told people I was going there, oh yeah, they got this great program. You go three years to Williams and then you go two years to MIT and you get a BA and a BS degree. you know. And this was after Sputnik. All the energy went into getting people become engineers in the United States and catch up with the Russians and it was I finally said I got my B.S. degree by arcing over and getting a B.A. in economics. So I got my got plenty of B.S. in <laughs> economics. You know.
0: I love that. Yeah. And well, also, just just to inject quickly, is I always say with Malibu, it's not seven degrees of separation. It's always around about two. And we're, yeah, and we're all yes, there with each other. And, yes, and what yes. Max didn't mention there was he was actually on a rugby tour, which is close to my heart, being a Welshman. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And Alison and myself yeah. got married in Williamstown by Williams College.
1: No.
2: Yeah, because I grew up in Pittsfield.
1: Oh, my goodness.
2: Massachusetts. And he's Williams. Uh, yes.
1: So yeah,
2: I, we, I said, look, you're going to have so many fewer guests than me. flying in from wales Uh so why don't we bring you to williamstown Uh and we got married at the williams inn
0: yeah it's the only way i could get to wear a williams Uh (laughs) t-shirt it was in october Uh uh-huh you know wow beautiful time yeah stunning
2: so we went all over that's wonderful so i'm one of six Uh under seven years old Uh uh-huh
1: Boom! 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 <laughs> boom! Boom!
2: boom. <laughs> the, the last two were twins. Just being part of a large family and finding your own identity and your own way through it is, isn't it itself a journey to figure out who you are in the midst of all that is? Yes. And yeah. the whole concept of being you yes. becomes a lifelong pursuit, mm-hmm. of figuring out. Who yes. the BU is going to be. If yes. You're not going to be the you that they <laughs> want you not to be. So, if you're not going to be the vet, Vietnam vet, uh-huh. so you're not going to be the father figure images coming down the line. Mm-hmm. How did that journey go for you in figuring out that you are in all of it?
1: There was a kind of a path for me, I guess. My father had an office supply business in Detroit. And then he also had been a musician, piano player, had a band in the big band era, had a talent agency that booked the bands of kind of the guys that had been in his band who continued to play. But um, he used to say, music is a great slave, but a poor taskmaster. I would sometimes say, could it be a friend? I think that all of a sudden he had all these mouths to feed. So that kind of where he was going with. And also my twin sister, who was the one who took piano lessons and played the Moonlight Sonata and sat next to him and played the flute and all of that. He showed me a few chords in seventh grade and I kind of got into playing rock and roll and stuff. But it was my sister who really had that connection with him. She had a great connection with her dad and I had a greater connection with my mom. But I remember her telling me that he said one time, I I really didn't keep playing because, I mean, he always played for things and he, you know, he had a wonderful touch, had an old stride piano, but he, I guess, confessed to her. He said, you know, I just didn't think I was that good. He said, turns out I was wrong. He had come to realize at a certain point in his life, actually, I I was good. I I can play. I think he would have been happy if I'd stayed and taken over the business like my youngest sister did. But I really wanted to get out of there.
2: We grew up with that sentence, too, Uh is, you know, I've got eight mouths to feed. So for me, that registered as I don't want to be a mouth you have to feed. Uh I'm quite happy to get out there and be pretty independent to be resolved of the mouth to feed Mm -hmm. thing. But it had a big impact on independence and direction and needing to move.
1: But certainly people that went through hard times before the war. And then after the war was a time of just kind of growing abundance for most Americans. But I knew that my dad had started working early and helping with his family. His dad, I think, kind of was never heard a whole lot of detail about his dad, other than he just had a hard time with those times. I think he was more, and it was his mom who kind of held the family together and turned their house into a tea shop. And so I was, I worked harder than anybody in my class earn my own money and stuff like that and I I was ready to leave Michigan and there were interesting things going on in in California Uh, one of them being uh, my junior high girlfriend who had moved out there and I had reconnected with so that on that level but also just you know the 69 it was actually the flower was beginning to wilt I think in by the time I got there, in many ways, the, the, the flower was wilting and many of the, the real pure uh, cosmic hippie spirits like Chris had already, I don't know, headed north to Oregon. But that's what took me out to California. And I think that I found my way into acting there in San Francisco. My mother had been an actress for the brief time before she was, you know, after she was a teenager and before she got married at 21. But she studied at the, at the Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York and did Barter theater and did you know a certain amount of theater and and then continued to act in the local and went up to Stratford Ontario every year for the Shakespeare Festival. That was her one time she would take off and be alone. So it wasn't like it was a weird thing. It would have been more my twin sister or my brother that people would have said one of these guys is going to have an acting career and they're both very talented and do creative things. And my brother's an actor. He just didn't get lucky enough to get in a in a really well written TV show. You know, so he hasn't had quite as much work
0: with dina get on to the acting part but just quickly Mm -hmm. with only that it springs to mind as we're chatting with one of the premises of what we love doing is putting the jigsaw together of what beliefs shape me how did i come upon those beliefs were they put upon me did i just pick them up by osmosis and it seems even interesting there where we've we've almost got the the acting and the music dichotomy of the taskmaster is my dad's thing with my sister The acting's the hard work and it's my mum's thing. And it's interesting in in knowing you, Max, is that there's almost been a couple of windows open that, no, I'm going to go on tour with with Buffy and then suddenly a TV thing comes along or I'm going to go up north and play the stand-up piano and something else comes up. And these windows almost where... The, the inherent beliefs that's almost subconscious within us that drives towards an acting and, and then pulls the reins back in on the music, even though you have both there available to you. Do you. ever had thoughts about that or seen it in that way?
1: Is that me? The music just on time. <laughs> just <laughs> on funny. time.
0: See, that was a music gig uh-huh, coming in. Uh... <laughs> You've been blocked again. That's, a... that's what it felt like to me with with music with you is is even, I didn't mention it, earlier on either but even if we go back to i think it's when you were with willie and it's like you've got all this music you've got to get it recorded and the second you go into the studio and you start laying down tracks something else of life yes happens again yes. and it's and yes. for me it's like listening to you play it's like instant smile on the face you sat at the piano and, and you're singing it's like sometimes things even if they weren't meant to necessarily be front and center at certain times of your life there's always the room for them to come forward at other times
1: I think so. And I'm kind of at that point right now, you know, being with this wonderful group, the Composer's Breakfast and so many people who, when they talk about, you know, their youth and the time they got that record and then they went in their room and they just did nothing but till they could play every lick, the commitment and the, the draw and the like, there were really no other choice. And I guess I was drawn in, in a lot of different ways, you know, so I don't have that kind of Something you know, but I have learned that I've had some wonderful musicians who have enjoyed willingly, happily playing with me on my stuff, even though I can't hang with them and all of that. So I'm I'm looking for the way to to get that going because I know it keeps me on a path.
2: Tell us how the acting path unfolded. We have some background, but on behalf of any listeners who may not have that, and kind of where your kind of beliefs led to it, and and got tra- challenged in that you had had two sides of, of that going on what led you in well and what also maybe strained you within it
1: there was always a theater group in the high school that they would do the senior class play and they, everybody knew who was going to be in the play and they would do something like the man who came to dinner or something and some people would have lot of powder in their hair and play older and you know and that was kind of like what it always was but when we became seniors and I was the kind of perennial class president and I thought it would be the idea came up of doing Annie Get Your Gun which had a cast of 40 or 45 or something which meant that like a whole lot of people could be in it which was kind of annoying to the people who thought no, we're going to be the ones who do the you know they were but they had company but I played a walk-on part of the two nights of the show and that on one of those nights I walked Walked on and delivered a telegram, and then I worked up in the lighting booth. And then when I was in graduate school, after two years of teaching, I um, enrolled in the graduate school of business out at University of Michigan. And then the second year, they had a thing where you could take a course outside of the business school if it was a graduate level course. And I'm looking through the art school. Oh man, that's that. Oh no, I have to have a portfolio. Okay, what well, oh here's theater. Oh, there's theory of acting. Oh, that sounds like we would like watch movies and write papers. I could do that. But anyway, I found myself in this acting class where there, Gilda Radner was in the class. It was like after Yale School of Drama and it was one of the top schools, but it did kind of give me some sense of what might happen and then sort of jump cut i moved out to san francisco and i was playing piano bar gigs but the stage play of one floor of the cuckoo's nest had opened up and i had read that book it was that and bury my heart at wounded knee it were a part of my decision to head to san francisco and uh, so they were looking for understudies because they'd opened up this production the the original broadway production with kirk douglas had uh, folded that was the year kennedy was assassinated But some guys had taken the play and made it more like the book, which the chief, the chief Brown was the narrator of the book. So anyway, I I went down and auditioned and I ended up being given the job of understudy for the chief. All of a sudden he got fired because he had these artistic differences with one of the other actors. The guy playing the chief was very uh, much into the method. And the other guy was a tall crane of a guy. You know, he was like 6'4", 130 pounds. And he was coming out himself in his own life. And he was playing a character who was very challenged by his own, accepting his own sexuality and stuff. So, so he was really effective. But it was all technical. You know, he didn't really cry, but he just, you know, he, 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 you know, and the guy playing the chief was very much into the method. So he was really crying. But sometimes, you know, there would be so much snot in his nose, you know, you couldn't understand what he was saying. And after one of the curtain calls, as they headed down the stairs to where the dressing rooms were in this little theater and stuff, and the the guy playing the chief gave the other guy a kind of a forearm shove, you know, and it came to a head and and, and I got the call, be at the theater at six o'clock. We're going to need to show you where you need to be standing when the lights come down. Somehow I got that there was something in that story, that thing of being big but thinking you're little and the role of alcohol. And since then, I've come to understand, you know, Ken Kesey was writing about the Columbia River Indians, you know, Well, now one of my dearest friends, quote, man, Salmi is from there. I know his family. And I know, you know, I mean, I know so much more than I think Kitty really had an understanding of what that's all about. But nonetheless, it was, it was that. And right at that time, there was an occupation of Alcatraz by um, uh, Indians of all tribes, one of the precursors of a American Indian movement. And they had occupied Alcatraz that had been abandoned by the federal government. And there was a lot of Political hay being made about what, what it was going to be. And um, I ended up doing the play for two years and coming into awareness of the actor's studio and approaches to acting. And I did some commercials and a couple of small movie parts. And the time came where I said, well, I think I'm going to follow this path at least to head down to Los Angeles. And then I ended up going to New York for, for a year, but to do, go into the play there and came back. I have sort of bootlegged into a place at Malibu Colony. And I was running long runs on the beach and these these rhymes that for me that I would use that when I'd want to write something for my folks at Christmas time or something, you know. But uh, it was more processing things like do something beautiful or just processing my own um, spiritual growth.
0: If we framed it as I believes, do you think you, you believed very much in being as an actor on that end of the spectrum as opposed to deep dive in and a different end of the spectrum to method acting? Was it something innate in you or was it just you just did it your own way? Or or was it very much a specific thing where
1: you wanted to turn up and relate with the other actors and be you? I think belief connects a lot with faith, the notion of faith. So it's where where people have, have difficulty if they have a kind of materialistic or scientific sort of view that thinks it's all can be described in terms of matter. Which it can't. And any real understanding of science totally understands that. I think there was more of a not continuing to play some kind of game that wasn't working for me. And in playing it, I was picking up a sense of shame in a way because I wasn't authentic. I wasn't, I just felt like a failure, a fake, a fraud. I'm not this guy with all this potential. It was around that time when I would find myself, you know, holding up somewhere just away from the world if I could find find a place. And now all of a sudden I'm playing this guy that I'm in a play, but I'm sitting in a chair all kind of hunched over and, or I'm pushing my broom around the stage. You know, I don't say a word until into the second act. So there was something in there that I, I did participate in a psychodrama group for a while, which was people would sort of act out, play roles with each other, all trying to figure out, you know, the best thing I remember about that was some guy was lamenting about his breakup of his marriage and his stuff. And he said, but I invested so much time. And somebody said, no, you didn't invest it. You spent it. And I remember that That's moment. <laughs> I got just sort of change my whole sense of opening me or opening pathways. And then something shows up. And then you're, that's what you're doing. That's right. right? Yeah, you that's know, right. so I, it's been more like that for me. So but I you find
0: the, some nub of authenticity in it. So you, you you would show up to the table for whatever the role, but it was important to you to find some kernel of authenticity that you could embody. So it wasn't a game and it wasn't a fraud or any of that.
1: No, it was like that last verse to do something beautiful. The one chance I see that my life will have some meaning for me. There was always an aspect of something that was- trying to be a part of something, but at the same time, it needed to fit a certain narrative.
2: As you're talking, I'm hearing one of the things that does come up on the human journey or comes up in all of our journeys is that, I guess on the road to authenticity is that reconciliation with the, the void or some sort of thing that's a hunger inside that isn't about attainment, achievement, title, position or route. It can't be filled by those things. So you start navigating authenticity in that void. You start trying to figure out what fulfillment is. And to me, the definition of fulfillment that most resonates is the soul's hunger satiated. So every decision, every door opening that could somehow reconcile something inside Mm -hmm. that moves you closer something that makes more sense of you each time. So I even see the play you end up in being part of that story, that character being something that helps feed something. Yes. That educates something Mm -hmm. that moves you on Uh and moves you to the next open door and that those doors opening for you are not colliding with you, but colluding with you if, yeah. if you're hungry or if you're following that. But you can ignore it. You can stay on, a, on the path the world defines for you for a very, very long time. Or you keep challenging yourself, challenging yourself to yes. find your way through.
1: Yeah, or we end up medicating ourselves or something well, else. Well, yeah, you, you can know, do that but, too. You know.
2: So here you make this move to San Francisco, and then you kind of, from understudy to now I'm on the stage playing this role. Uh, yeah. You moved even past that onto some other things. So each time something must have been complete to move to that next thing.
1: I think so, and yet, yet it was the time when I was running, running the beach, and these songs were coming to me, and that opened up a whole other feeling of who I was. And then I started to get parts I read for, or I had a thing happen several times where I get a call from the producers. We just want you to know that the network is insisting that we cast this blonde guy or this person, this something, you know. But we just want you to know that when you came in and read, you showed us a whole other way of uh, looking at what we're doing here. When I got the Barney Miller pilot, I was ready to leave it all. And I knew this place at Big Sur where there was a kind of a basement room that looked out in the mountainside and there was a big upright piano in there. And I thought, I. Hey. I'm going to go rent that spot and write songs. Pilot would give me enough money to do that, you know, and it got picked up right away and I, I did it and then it was um, connecting with Buffy that I connected with these people that I'd been watching while doing the play Cuckoo's Nest then it was Alcatraz and then there was the occupation at Wounded Knee. So there was a whole lot about who are Indian people and what is their relationship with the United States of America and what is all of that that really fed me in terms of spirituality and that understanding in terms of economics and the sense of, you know know. know how do we allocate and take care of and share resources and they had a whole other insights that you know transcended and enfolded that kind of communist capitalist duality or is it the individuals have to do it for themselves or tough luck you know or is it everybody has to do something for you know they just didn't get caught in that kind of kind of simplistic duality where people are on sides like we are so much in the country right now.
0: It's definitely an enmeshed journey with you and the Native American Indians, which we'll put on hold for a second, but I definitely want to come back to
1: Okay, being Welsh, being a Brit
0: and uh-huh. growing up in Brit. Can you just, for our expanded audience, which is second nature for you, just talk a little bit about your role in Barney Miller and Stan Wojo and just how that all felt for you. And, and also when Al was talking there, which really resonates is... Our beliefs are so, we can understand them or people can perceive to have an understanding of a journey, but it's so personalized. And I think if you talk through Wojo and then pull us out with all our beliefs, all of the stuff that makes us
1: uh-huh. up. Okay. I think I've re- I know what you're referring to there. Oh, so I did get offered the, the part and I did it and I and I found myself with a bunch of really talented people. And you know, at that time, you know, cops were, it's certainly the feeling of most people my age, You know, cops were you know, the pigs. and at the same time, of course, they were the the heroes of most films and television shows. but I had a sense about this character that was originally conceived of as a, that very black and white person who just saw things in terms of this is right and that's wrong. And I spent a lot of time thinking, am I gonna am I gonna do this? How am I gonna do this? you know and it was uh, actually with a friend of mine I'd gone out of Mexico call with and and there was something that he did that was was basically just a big shrug. And in the moment right now, the the closest thing I could connect it to would be Tevyev in Fiddle Around the Roof. Tradition, you know, where his daughter wants to do something that, you know, there's the tradition on the one hand, and then there's my daughter, and I love her so. And in the end of the song, he goes, "Ah," you know, he just kind of shrugs it off. So it was um, a sense of just to go for it for this time. I had a lot to learn about acting, but the one thing I did have was a, a kind of Taking a really as serious an actor Studio approach to what's going on there as, as I could and knew how to do, and I think uh, what that brought to the show was others who had much more stagecraft. I mean, Hal had it and it won the Tony. For, he'd done you know a whole lot of Broadway uh, musical theater, and uh, Ron Glass had done a great deal of Shakespeare at the Guthrie, and so there was a lot of craft there that kind of got people doing well. This is sort of how we do sitcom. But I would be asking, if Wojo is supposed to be able to kill a man with his thumb and he's got to do this little karate move, I need someone to teach me karate. Taking it way more seriously than some people thought I should have. As I look back on it now, I say, well, I, it certainly wasn't Shakespeare I was doing, you know. But I brought something into it that then that would start to get feeded back into the kind of roles that Wojo, Wojoowicz, for those that don't know, the Polish guy in his police precinct, you know, the detective squad room. And I think that it was that growth in there, but at the same time, I was interested in where the music was taking me, and that connected me into Native Americans, and in a way, my role and connector to where to keep going with the character came from people I had met who were also Native American veterans. Some Marines like Wojo, some in the Army, but I'd meet them. And on the res and at powwows and at people who had every right to be really bitter and resentful about America, they also were vets. And I got a sense of, of heart there that is kind of the way I took it. I guess if I hadn't had that experience, maybe I would have gotten a black belt in karate and uh, done a lot of weightlifting and would have gone somewhere else. But that's how the path unfolded with those two things kind of feeding back. I love what yeah. you said about soul and feeding the soul. I'm Welsh. I grew up
0: in Wales. I'm yeah. very proud of the earth and the land and the Celtic history, the land that I grew up on. No, you know, I work a lot with the Native American medicine animals through helping people through subconscious uh-huh. issues and journeys and what's showing up and what the medicine of that animal might, might show for them. And yet, obviously, I in this lifetime haven't been a native american indian but i'm very comfortable in my own journeys and i can i can state my belief out there i believe in past lives i believe in the soul and i believe in many lives where i have been a native american and i'm very comfortable in saying that so when i'm knowing you max and looking how do you frame the connection with the native american indians from right back to gross eel and the bended bow sapling that's this massive tree limb now to Playing the first major role you did on the theatre was the chief, and then all your connections with those communities and how close it is to your heart. You must have thought about it a lot over the years in terms of how do you frame how that connection came in or maybe why it came in or how you see it.
1: In that world, people often say skins. <laughs> you know, I think um, we all uh, come from people who preceded certainly the Industrial Revolution and a whole lot of other changes, even going back before what we now call civilization. We all have that. That's there in your Welsh, and that's there in the story of, of Arthur and the once and future king and the, and the Merlin and those connections to other species and other relationships uh, and other entities and beings or or levels of, of being, you know, the Irish leprechaun who, who takes that thing you're looking for and just holds on to it till you look all over and then goes and puts it back in the first place you looked, you know. So for me, when that really kicked in, that gave me something to, again, I love this Ken Wilber expression, transcend and enfold. Anyway, I was working on this, uh song started coming to me that I realized fairly early on, oh, this is like the Lord's Prayer, but in a different vernacular. Kind of tipped me off in a way that showed up right away. For those that might not know, well, what do you mean it shows up? It just shows up. It just comes to you and it maybe it doesn't want to go away or something. And it was the line, uh, in the beginning was the word. And I thought, in the beginning was the word. Of course, I've heard that it continues on. And the word was God, and the word was with God in the beginning. Well, that must be Exodus. And I thought I'd check and find out. No, it's not. It's not in Exodus. It's actually in the Gospel of John. And then I kept checking that out more, and I learned that John was considered the more mystical of those four versions of, of the gospel, the good news and all. And I was just puzzling around it. And somebody sent me a book and said, hey, I found this book. It's about all the shit you're always talking about. And uh, it was called Dialogue by uh, this fellow William Isaacs at MIT had the Dialogue Project. And he'd worked with unions and companies and all of that. And his whole thing was around the dialogue was, you know, the idea of a conversation with a center rather than sides or the art of thinking together. Those were his two kind of catchphrases. And in the introduction to the book, he's talking about this expression, in the beginning was the word, because dialogue is through the word, dialogos. Oldest meaning of logos in the Greek language was this notion of, of gathering together in a context where all things are related. So he says, so if someone were to ask me, when people do ask me, what is the word? And he brought up the Gospel of John. He'd say, I'd say it was relationship. And immediately I connected that with this Lakota expression that's, that's the end of most prayers, or when the pipe is passed, or you enter the sweat lodge, and the prayer is for all my relations. It's usually said in English, for all my relations. But, but it could be translated as we are all related. So it's a kind of a whole expression that in English you can break it out in different ways. And for me, that just dispelled the whole idea that there's something from Western culture, which comes from the east of the Western hemisphere. You know, yeah. so right away we're languaging, we're we're creating these abstractions that make distinctions. But the idea that those of us from over there, you know, will never have the connection to those of them from here to have these understandings. And um it just sort of poof went away. But that insight, that understanding that it's all about relationship which then then helps to understand the quantum physics that I certainly don't understand the math of, but I get the, the expression of it that it's, it's all energy, and it's all about the relationships of things that don't really quite exist in the way we, we think of things existing. You know? So anyway, it goes like this, and it's like that universal metaphysical statement or offering or asking that is known as the Lord's Prayer. But it's, it's kind of a universal, but I got to say the, the insight I found in a calligraphy book once uh, about poetry, which is a kind of prayer itself. Uh, people who share their poetry in public may have other nasty habits. So I mean, can I? We can love you, <laughs> poetry. Just, <laughs> just, we so just your poetry. We could soak Trying to stay authentic, okay? okay. But it goes like this. It goes, creator supplied us with spirit to guide us through things that divide us. To the love light inside us and the children playing and the parents praying and the old ones saying goodbye in the beginning they say was the word and the heart song let it be heard creator creation of all my relations your names are sensations of your emanations we work we play we feel you we pray you show us a way we can live feed us today Please don't lead us astray. Give us heed in the way we forgive. For beyond the kingdoms and powers and glories, you're the whole of the circle, the soul of the stories, the father, the mother, the one and the other of all that can live and can be. History holds us in patterns of pain, and the mystery still sets us free. So humbly we thank you for all you have given. For the loved ones who light up the lives we are living, the children playing, the parents praying, the old ones saying goodbye, each true beginning, renewing the word. In the heart song, let it be heard.
0: That's beautiful. That, in the heart song, let it be heard. I didn't know you finished it with that. From my point of view, I think there's so much knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, or feelings, or processing that's going on, it's the only format, really, that can get so much out in a short space of time sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, and that's, I, I, I can resonate so. with yeah. all of that language.
2: I'm the same. I think just watching you s- speak it, mm-hmm. I'm not just watching, hearing and feeling you speak, it, and probably everyone listening, they're hearing and seeing and feeling that three-dimensionally, yes. because you received those words, and you're not reading them you remembering them and you're hearing them when you're saying them. So you're not just speaking out. I think sometimes when we're sitting in the presence of something quite educated in the mind, you read and deliver. But Mm -hmm. when it's been delivered to you, you're reciting and listening. You're the observer and the deliverer, and that resonates as much as the words that come through, so they're not just a poem. In my experience, I've had that happen a few times, but each time that words are meant to be shared out, they're also meant to heal something inside. So yes. every time you say it, yes, I can see you rehearing it.
1: Yes, with you. Yeah. And and you, as I, so I look at it, you, and I, it is something that, that gets shared in that way, you know. Yeah, in, you're rehearing
2: a, it, but you're re-delivering it in a time in the world that it needs to be reheard.
1: You know, I do think we are certainly at a time where, you know, we're so divided as a country, but it's we're not the only country where that's happening and that's kind of moving away from each other. It's gonna take new beginnings within And uh, that willingness to see the humanity and people that both sides feel so insulted by the other side and so dismissed. And the fears are kind of put in the same words, you know, the off the cliff of capitalism or off the cliff of socialism. So there are some of those tropes that are passed around. But underneath that are these senses of not a connection.
2: The disconnection that we see outside is the disconnection that we feel inside. Yes. It's a mirror. And it's fear meeting fear really yeah it's fear seeing itself play yes. back at itself and so the distancing that's happening isn't just social distancing from each other It's the is the reflection of the individual distance from ourselves yes. the to be you yes yeah. and, and the disconnect with self-identity yes the journey of figuring out what you even is how you came to understand it and whether you ever challenged it yeah and the imposition of thought or the imposition of belief, which started right away in our lives through the framing
1: uh-huh.
2: of our existences. Th- there's no two sets of eyes that look at the world through the same understanding of its world. Nobody came out the same from the womb no. forward. It's, it's- so even if we're arguing a point, and we think we're on the same card as someone next to us, we're not through our perceptions and our eyes. But if we don't heal the eyes we see, them through there will be no unity because we're not united with our eyes we're not united with ourselves we're not healing the things that are going on inside ourselves to bring that that unity consciousness in if 2020 was a disconnection year 2021 is a reconnection time
1: i'm certainly looking for that yeah. it's <laughs> hopeful one, of the, one of the ways
0: one of the ways we framed it last week in terms of I think we've been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in duality consciousness, the yin and the yang or the shadow and the light. And again, it's only my own understanding, my own belief of what maybe it's projection of a hope as opposed to embedded. But I do feel it's embedded that we are shifting to a unity consciousness. So the amplification of the clinging on with their nails of dualities never been as amplified almost as it is now, where everything's divided and duality and divisive and. On our own little tiny ways, what we're hoping to do is everyone has their own beliefs that are truly valid and they should be safe and free to just share what it is that they believe in themselves.
2: We've done this because we're inviting people to re-ask. Do they really believe that thing they're shouting? Have they thought about it? Where'd they get it from? Uh Is it handed down or embodied? Is it something that can be evolved and surrendered? Or is it something that actually needs to be owned and taken accountability for? And so as we're listening to, you know, we're talking about hoping that there's a movement that that begins to invite everybody to take a step back instead of placing that voice out in the world, place that voice inside and really do a little bit of work around Mm -hmm. thinking about the beliefs that you want to be emanating out into that world and re-honing beliefs so they do emanate better, taking more responsibility for the world we're creating from the internal place. So we're listening, and we're going, okay, how did he do it? <laughs> he came from three sets of twins, <laughs> seven kids, a story, a backstory, a narrative story, in essence, handed down from mom. Or, but you, you have to transcend that, find your way in it. A musician, actor, fame not fame how do i feel about all that native americans their practices their beliefs honing all the time you and the you you want to embody in the world and therefore the world you want to create with the the you you're bringing forward so the questions we're asking are kind of how are you running those beliefs how are the beliefs that defined you been refined to redefine you in the world you're in. And these poems and things, they kind of share those stories, how, mm. how those have come through you and helped redefine the world.
1: She's wonderful. <laughs> she is. I'm very. Are both wonderful. I waited a
0: long time <laughs> <You> <laughs> know, until I was an old uh, man for her uh, to come into the light. <laughs> well, that's all relative.
1: <laughs> but, you know, I think for the first time I got a good sense of where my belief is that I believe that people are, uh, humans are essentially good collectively i'm not so sure right now it's a species we're kind of out of control but individually i i do believe that everybody has goodness in them it might be covered up or contained or wounded or hiding or whatever but i i, I think i do operate from that belief i certainly do feel these days collectively you know and yet i i know that the the kind of paradox of it is that collectively we are just a bunch of individuals the only thing we really have in common with each other is we're each unique so there's paradox in there.
0: There is. I'm with you. I definitely believe that good in people. Just to digress very quickly, we did a, a little short film on the, on the fires, or the aftermaths of the fires, and one of our contributors, a friend, wrote a book called The Disaster Diaries, and you know they're saying all the entities of police entities, martial entities, and everything are trained that people are going to go feral in the face of a disaster. And what wow. it actually proves is people come together, they look after each other, they ask each other, how can I help? And there's a real individual's humanity and ability for that humanity and i'm much more on that side of the camp
2: one of the things we were going to ask you if you had any belief that really served you that really pulled you through is there any particular belief that's actually served you and in parallel any particular belief that did not serve you well that you've let go if you were to think about all the different things that you had to believe in order to get you through what, what one or two you know, formative beliefs have really served you well.
1: Well, I know certainly my relationships and experience being with uh, you know Native Americans or Indians or you know indigenous people or whatever, with sweat lodge and ceremonies that got me to an understanding of what prayer is. And it's certainly when I, I found myself in a time where wow, I finally really experiencing what real love is—the love of a person and then having a child together, you know—and then that's being taken away, you know, and after a certain amount of time of we're going to lick this or rise above it or something and realizing, no, no, we're not, and it's going to go this way. And certainly that was there for me, just a way to, to be with it from uh, my friend Sheldon Wolfchild I mentioned earlier, you know, taking me by both shoulders and looking me in the straight in the eye and saying, stay healthy. And Archie uh, Fire Lame Deer, who is a spiritual Leader of Dakota, spiritual leader, you know, be just a, a way, a way to be with it, you know, to understand it and accept how much I wasn't going to understand and intellectually, and and um, just being with the, the the sacredness and the blessings and the, the life of it all. So that's what comes up for me with with that part of the question. As far as when when times when uh, something didn't work out, all of a sudden I'm you know there's a cornucopia of moments where I've done something that was self-serving in some kind of way that might have been just how I dealt with my, my own perceived emotional or physical or sexual needs in a certain moment when I look back on it to other choices I've made in life that have always been the smaller choice or the more protective choice or the more dishonest or, like I say, it's a cornucopia of, you know, that I just didn't really just go from my highest and best self or um, somewhere in there, there's a thing of holding on to resentment, making you make choices. You maybe haven't, don't express all of your considerations because you think that you somehow, you know, or you think it might be the right thing to do or something, but you still hold on to, you didn't really, don't feel like you got back what you should have gotten back or something. You know, I've been told that the, the word sin, that the idea of sin actually comes more from the idea of missing the mark. It's not a scar or a blight on you. It's just. Being off center or off missing missing. That's and, what I was going to
0: ask. It's the it's the journey of the human soul, and and with all the deep dives that you've done, there must also be a parallel with that. Of we give ourselves a hard enough time as it is, there's got to be a ultimately core forgiveness in there, isn't it? It's like I love the your choice of words. It's I may have made the small choice or was slightly off track, but it's all our, our journey that helps us understand who we are. And we find it too easy to give ourselves a hard time, but find it a lot harder to. F- Forgive and, and care about ourselves yeah. for our choices.
1: Yes, we have. If we're gonna forgive, we have to forgive ourselves too. And Definitely. Uh, uh, yeah. There's another song lyric that's coming up for me oh, now. This song, uh, you you don't need no reason for singing the blues, <clears throat> and it's kind of a gospel feel. But it goes, I ain't I ain't had much reason for singing the blues, and I hear this chorus. You know, just why is that? And, I ain't had a lot of pain and not too much pain or paid a lot of dues but I've paid the price or lacked much for love. Oh, but I've lost it or lost at the game. Oh, but I've played it or fought for my freedom but you never betrayed it or sunk in my shame. Somehow I've made it but I have known heartbreak and I have been lost. And I have seen brother beating down brother at every border I've crossed. And I see the injustice. And I've strayed far from God, the source of all being. And I have seen beauty being burnt beside the road fame and fortune have trod. And Usually when I I lose a line, I realize that's the reason I'm saying this is because that's what I really need to hear right now. And uh, look around and see what's happening. Look, wherever you choose, you find you don't need no reason for singing the blues. But it's that thing about, I haven't sunk in my shame, you know. That sums it up. I, I've, done, I've done a lot of things that I regret, and some I have uh, real remorse about, but I haven't sunk in it. <laughs> so Beautifully said.
2: Yeah, we always talk about the evolution of our beliefs and, and how just noticing what we're creating in life isn't really creating what we want, so... Question where that's coming from. And we talked about that in our own lives. I'm like, I probably ran a million beliefs about how men are this way or women are this way. And okay, great. So, therefore, you're bringing that right in. That's not really working for you. Uh-huh. So, what do you want to believe now? And are you going to have faith in believing that? You're going to have the courage of that belief that you can break the other story and give a new narrative to something and not be hard on yourself over whatever preceded it or went before. Mm -hmm. So when we look at it, like if there was one thing we'd want to wish as a new belief in the world right now or emanating back at us differently, one of those may be around unity. What would you want for the world we're sitting in now?
1: For me, relationship. And feeling that relationship with with others. And I do feel maybe that there's been a ebb and flow of that all along and we're just caught in the in the tide of that duality and unity, but certainly the sense of connecting to each other and appreciating the needs of others and the, the way of looking at things that there is abundance here that there's enough for everyone if we share it. And if we hold on to the idea that there's not enough, then we just are either going to get ours or lose ours. I really enjoyed just sitting with you two here. We're all kindred spirits for, for sure here. And I do think that just creating the context where people can share what they have in their hearts and, and soul and, you know, and minds and, and come together with it and modeling that. Because most of what's on the Internet and on the airwaves and stuff is it's something else.
2: Um, but just for someone listening to rehear, I believe connection matters. I believe relationship matters. I believe in abundance is probably really helpful right now because it's as if the news channels and the media and the, the, the breaking that ability and the freedom to feel safe in that down. So the beauty of listening to you, is rehearing, I believe in relationship matters. I believe connection matters. Mm -hmm. I believe unity matters. I believe sin is just slightly off track. Don't worry about it so much. It's really helpful because there's a lot more compassion coming down the airways. And and I think sometimes our hearts just need to hear that to to let something go.
1: I agree wholeheartedly. (laughs) I believe that this is the goodness that we're all looking for to be able to to come together and share our hearts and minds with each other. Okay, well, I'm sure that if you have been listening to this, you've had uh, thoughts of your own, and I believe it's your turn to share them with others and maybe share them. I'm sure you have some way that people can feedback their thoughts and stuff as you put this out. So, uh, yes, I believe it's your turn.
0: Fantastic. In the meantime, you can check out the whole series so far of I Believe. Probably the quickest way to access is I Believe website, which is www.ibuleve.com.
2: Also, if you're really enjoying the show and you want to show us uh, your support, you can find us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash I Believe.
0: And join us for next week's episode where we're delighted to have New York City Ballet's supremely talented soloist, Indiana Woodward, joining us for that podcast where we're going to cover all things I believe. Thanks, Max, so much for coming in and sharing with us. Max, Magic. thank you
2: so much. It's It's been fun. And I'm sure for anybody who has seen Barney Miller, and I did see Barney Miller. <laughs> 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 it's also fun to hear the max scale really is it's not the characters we see on the television it's so so much more it's wonderful to be able to bring forward as somebody who can really help invite people to come forward too
0: absolutely now it's your turn what do you believe